This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. I wonder if any of you remember, I'm sure you do, um, the tragedy of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. One of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded history. On the 26th of December 2004, a massive tsunami with waves up to 100 feet devastated communities along the surrounding coasts of the Indian Ocean, killing an estimated 27,000 people in 14 different countries. A good friend of mine who had recently found faith in God abruptly stopped coming to church. He decided he no longer wanted to follow a God who he thought could allow something like that to happen. A few years ago, I plucked up the courage to to share a prophetic, prophetic, encouraging word with someone I knew, a lady who I knew through my kids, only to be met with an immediate, deep-felt resistance against anything related to God. When her children were only very little, her husband was killed in a car accident, and so she was left alone to bring up her kids as a single mum and her children without a dad. And from that point on, she decided that she didn't want to know a God who she thought would allow something like that to happen. Just recently, I was chatting with a a lovely chap who was explaining to me that he could never be religious or believe there was a God because when his two twin boys were just a few months old, his mother, his boy's grandmother, was taken away from them due to cancer robbing his kids of many years of the love of a doting grandmother. God made no sense to him, certainly not a good or powerful God. What do we say in these situations? How can we respond? There was nothing I felt I could say in those moments. I simply just felt their tangible pain. And I can understand their logic. If God is good and powerful, how come awful things like that happen? Why doesn't God intervene and stop them? How come there is so much suffering in the world? And maybe you've thought that yourself at some point. Maybe you're in the middle of something awful right now that's causing you to ask that question. Is God good? Can I really trust him? Now, before I go on, if you're in that place, I want to acknowledge your pain and suffering and say that whatever has happened to you is not okay. And I'm not about to offer some trite or oversimplistic answer to explain it all away. But this question of whether God is good is a really important one, and it is one that I want us to consider today. Now, maybe you're listening to this and thinking, I've never questioned God's goodness. There's that mantra that pastors sometimes use where the pastor shouts, God is good, and everyone shouts all the time. And then the pastor shouts again, all the time, and everyone says, God is good. You can imagine the scene, probably not in the vineyard setting. It's not quite our style, but people do do it. And it's that thing of when you know that you know that God is good. And I get that. I grew up in a church, um, going to a church every week, and it was talked to me as fact that God is good. 
And as a child, I never felt the need to question that. It never occurred to me. But whether or not you have ever felt the need to question it is a very real question for many people. And whilst you may not feel the need to question whether something like that is true, there can be value in thinking through why we believe something to be true. Since our sabbatical last year, I've been regularly meeting with a professor in theology, Stephen Burnhope. He kindly gives me his time and we meet purely so that I can ask him lots of really difficult questions. And I remember one time asking him something that I felt I really shouldn't be asking. And I apologize that I was probably being a bit heretical in asking it. And his reply to me was so releasing. He said, no, you're not being heretical. You're thinking theologically. I was actually finding it quite a compliment. Um, but you know, it's good to ask questions. It's good to think through our faith. Not just the what, but the why. Questions are good because asking questions is how we learn as human beings. We may not be used to questioning or even arguing. Have a, sorry, we may not be used to having a questioning or even arguing approach to our faith. But it's what Jewish rabbis used to do in Jesus' time. They called it midrash. And this is where you read scripture narratively rather than dissecting it. So debating it and interpreting it within a community, not alone, but exploring things like what did it actually mean then to the people at that time? And what is it then saying now to us in our context? And things like where's the divine voice in this story? And where's the human voice in this story? Jesus taught parables and used metaphors and imagery. So people needed to engage and question and work things out for themselves. So I don't think God is phased by our questioning. I think he actively encourages it. And if we know why we believe something, it may actually help us when difficult times come. And it may enable us to offer some hope to our friends who are asking these questions too. So today's question, is God good? Now, it's worth noting that quite often one good question leads to another. And the natural follow-on from is God good is if God is good, then why do bad things happen? But we only have so much time to, today. So for today, we're just going to explore the first question. And I'm going to follow up with the, the so why do bad things happen bit next time. Okay, so is God good? Well, the picture the Bible paints for us in its overall narrative is of a good God. This starts at the beginning where the original hearers of the Genesis creative nar creation narrative would have heard its message as picturing and implicitly contrasting the God of Israel with the other gods of the other nations. For example, the purpose of the narrative of the creation of people is to make the theological point that people were not made to be slaves of the gods, as the surrounding nations thought, but were made to be friends with the one true God, made for intimate relationship. And so at the heart of this narrative is that God is good, 
He's trustworthy, he's loving, and he's caring towards us, not capricious and unpredictable and about to lose his temper at a whim, like the creation narratives of the other nations said. <clears throat> the Psalms are drenched in declarations of the goodness of God. Time and time again in the Bible, we read that God is faithful, he's generous, he's loving, he's kind, he's our protector, our provider, our healer, and I could go on. Now, you may be thinking, yes, I get that. But the Bible doesn't always paint God in the perfect light. What about in the Old Testament when God supposedly ordered the mass killings of the Amalekites? Or sent a plague to kill the firstborn babies of the Egyptians holding Israel in captivity? Unread at face value, you might have a point. But the Bible is not meant to be read as a textbook. It's meant for midrash. It's not an encyclopedia of proposed truths in every statement and story, but rather it's a narrative of the journey of the nation of Israel. And Stephen Bernhope talks about this in his book on how to read the Bible well. The Old Testament is the story of an emerging revelation of who God is and what he's like with the ups and the downs along the way. It reflects the journey of the nation of Israel in getting to know God and understand him with their human foibles and the assumptions of their era. Sometimes they get God right, spot on, and sometimes they misunderstand him completely, just as people do today. Then, with the coming of Jesus, fully God and fully man in one seamless person, we see what God is really and truly like. Reflected in a human person we can see and relate to. Literally, God in flesh. Through, through revealing himself in Jesus, God is correcting the previous misunderstandings and false perceptions of who he is and what he's like. So in order to more fully explore the question of whether God is good, we need to take a closer look at Jesus. And I've used some of the material from The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith, which I would recommend to you. Now, not only does Jesus reveal God in himself, but he also points to who God is and calls him Father, and this is where we get into the tricky theology of the Trinity, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we're going to leave that for another day. It's also worth saying at this point that whilst God in his wisdom chose to reveal himself in the person of Jesus, and that Jesus calls God Father, it would be inaccurate to therefore assume that the God of the universe is actually biologically male. This is not a box we can put God in. There are plenty of verses that talk about God in mother language as well. So, in Luke 10, verse 22, Jesus is recorded to have said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There is so much that we can learn about God by looking at the God that Jesus knows and reveals. Jesus reveals a lot to us through the single word, Abba, 
God is Abba. The word Abba in Aramaic um, means father. Abba signifies the close, intimate relationship of a father and his child, as well as the childlike trust that a young person puts in his dad. It expresses affection and also confidence and trust. And Jesus uses this term when facing the most harrowing hours of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his torture and execution. And we read this in Mark's Gospel. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. I wonder if you can identify with that statement. Maybe not right now, but at some time you have. I'm sure many of us can. Stay here and watch, Jesus said. Then going a little farther, he, led, he fell to the ground. Imagine that. Jesus is beside himself. He's utterly desperate. He's completely wrung out. And then he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Have you ever asked that of God yourself? Take this from me. Get me out of this situation. I don't want this. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Oh my goodness, what an insight we have here into Jesus and that moment. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he's in so much anguish that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. The fact that Jesus addressed God in this moment with the word Abba, dear father, tells us that to him, God was not distant or far removed, but was intimately involved in his life. Now, this word does not in itself tell us that God is good. Neither dear nor father necessarily mean good. But to quote the New Testament scholar C.F.D. Moore, the intimate word conveys not a casual sort of familiarity, but the deepest, most trustful reverence. And we see this when Jesus prayed, when he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why else Could Jesus say this after asking for his cup to be taken away other than he knows that that God is good and is worthy of his trust? Thomas Smale in The Forgotten Father explains this well. He says, the father that Jesus addresses in the garden is the one that he has known all his life and found to be bountiful in his provision reliable in his promises, and utterly faithful in his love. He can obey the will that sends him to the cross with hope and expectation, because it is the will of Abba whose love has been so proved that it can now be trusted so fully by being obeyed so completely. 
This is not legal obedience driven by commandment, but trusting response to known love. Trusting response to known love. Jesus knows the goodness and love of God and was therefore able to trust him to bring him through the pain. Love that has been proved can be trusted even when things don't make sense. And there's a lot of life that doesn't make sense, don't you agree? If Jesus can trust God like that in the most agonizing and horrific circumstance, then maybe we can too. Jesus reveals a great deal about the God that he knows when he teaches his disciples to pray with what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And we read that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's going to come onto the screens. Brilliant. So it starts with our Father in heaven. It begins with Jesus teaching his disciples to address God as Father too, just like he did. He doesn't use a distant, impersonal title for us to use, but something that signifies that God is close, is connected, and is involved. So God is present. We then learn that God is pure. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to treat as holy. Jesus is teaching us that God is perfect in goodness and righteousness. There's nothing bad about God. God neither sins nor participates in evil. God is pure. We also learn that God is powerful. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has a kingdom. He is a king. And being the creator of the universe, he's the king of kings. God is powerful. We learn that God provides. Give us this day our daily bread. We have a God who makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall. He gives us the very air that we breathe and everything we need on this planet to sustain us. God is a God who cares for us and provides for us. Next slide. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive, have forgiven our debtors. We learn that God forgives. He pardons. Forgives feels like a better word, but it doesn't begin with P. And if you've been noticing, they all begin with P. So we're going to use pardons for now so we can remember this. In the word of Richard Foster, at the heart of God is the desire to forgive and to give. God loves to forgive even more than we love to be forgiven. And lastly, we learn that God is a God who protects. Verse 18 says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God guides and rescues us. Although we may suffer challenges and problems, there is nothing that can happen to us that God can't restore. I love the words of Jesus in John 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus' father is present. He's pure. He's powerful. Jesus' father provides. He pardons and he protects six Ps to make it easy to remember. These are six incredible attributes that point to a good and trustworthy God. This is the father that Jesus was putting his trust in when he knelt down on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane. This is the father Jesus invited his disciples and therefore us 
to put our trust in. In the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father to remove his cup from him. And my question for you today, and for me, is, are you holding a cup right now? And if so, what is it? What is your cup? Our cup is the things that feel forced on us in life. Our cup is usually the thing that makes it difficult to trust God. The thing that makes it difficult to believe that God is good. What aspects of your life make it difficult to trust God? What is your cup right now? Maybe you were hurt by a divorce. Maybe you suffered a loss. Maybe you are unable to find a life partner and struggle with the prospect of lifelong singleness. Maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one, the death of a dream, the loss of a business, the loss of some physical capacity. Our cup is anything in life we struggle to come to terms with. Right after the passage I read earlier from Matthew, where Jesus says that no one knows the Father except him and those to whom he reveals him to, the very next words from Jesus are these well-known ones. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we learn from Jesus, when we come to him and copy his way of doing things, then we can find rest for our souls. Thomas Smale said Jesus was able to trust God because he found God to be bountiful in his provision, reliable in his promises, and utterly faithful in his love. Jesus was keenly aware of the goodness of God. In order to get through our most difficult circumstances, we need to develop the clear sense that God is out for our good. And we can do this by becoming increasingly, increasingly aware of the many blessings in our own lives every day, just like Jesus. So we're going to start a powerful spiritual exercise now that we can continue once we leave here, if you'd like to. But we're going to take a few moments to make a list of all the wonderful things in our lives. And I'd like you to t pay attention to the details of your life. Look for the hidden things. Take notice of all the wonderful things that you often overlook. You might like to do this on your phone. That probably is the most natural thing. So feel complete freedom to get your phones out and I won't be offended. And um, if not, if you don't want to do it on your phone, um, we have got some paper and pens. So just pop your hand up if you'd rather use paper and pens. And the um, Kevin is going to come up and sing, um, for, sing a song whilst we do that, that we can join in with um, as we go through. But... You're with making your list, start small. So I want you to try and come up with a list of 20 things that God has blessed you with. So it can include things like your loved ones, practical provision or opportunities that you've been given. 
I can also include things like from creation or things that you love like coffee or ice cream or midday naps, that kind of thing, or things that God has done for you and answers to prayer. That's me. That's what I love. Mid-afternoon nap and you, Emma. Great. (laughs) You know, each day God is working to provide for us, even though we can't always see it. And um, we're going to do this now, but I would also encourage you to keep adding to your list. Try and get the list up to 50 things and then keep going. See if you can get to 100 things by the end of the week. Most of us are used to waking up and remembering our problems. But this exercise helps to shift our focus away from the things that are wrong to the many things that are beautiful and wonderful. So there's going to be a few suggestions on the screen to get you started there's things on there I like, like scientists who discover amazing things. Hugs, a stranger's smile. Anyway, so Kevin's going to sing now. But just before we do this, I just want to finish with one last quote by the musician and author David Crowder. He says, um, when good is found and we embrace it with abandon, we embrace the giver of it. Every second is an opportunity to praise. Finding God moment by revelatory moment in the sacred and the mundane, in the valley and on the hill, in the triumph and tragedy, and living praise erupting because of it. This is what we were made for.